0: What a privilege we have each and every Lord's Day to open the Word of God together to study and to hear from our Savior. And so I ask you this morning as we do to take our Bibles, open them with me to Luke chapter 9. If you're not there already, we are returning to this great passage in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36 in the glorification or the manifestation really of the glory of Jesus Christ. We began last Lord's Day to look at this miraculous account of what some of the Apostle writers, or at least some of the translators in translating the term, call it the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. This is for us then the second message that we are hearing on this because there is so much detail here that we cannot just simply run past it in one sitting, so we're returning this morning to these verses, verses 28 to 36, as we focus our attention uh, on what this event meant, not only to Jesus Christ on that day, but what it meant to the three disciples who were with Him there, and then implicationally, as Luke writes this to Theophilus, but also as the Spirit has it for us, implicationally, what this means for all of us who have believed in Jesus Christ. So follow along as I read for us, beginning in verse 28. Some eight days after these sayings, of course we understand what those sayings were because they're included for us there in the verses just ahead of that, beginning in verse 21. After these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who were appearing in glory, and they're speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem now peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep but when they were fully awake they saw the glory and the two men standing with him and as these were leaving him peter said to jesus master is it good for or it is good for us to be here let us make three tabernacles one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. The connection of this miracle with the ending of the verses in the passage before it, we cannot just simply skim past quickly. We understand Jesus has just been speaking about His suffering and His death. He had been talking to the disciples about what was to come. He was speaking to them plainly about those who were followers of His and how they were to live in His kingdom. They were to live a self-denying life. They were to deny self, it says, to take up their cross. He had emphasized to them the need to relinquish ownership of oneself if anyone was truly a follower of his. The life was to be characterized by this reality of of non-ownership of self, holding your life in such a way that God does what God does with it. And yet, in the same breath, he goes on to speak of his future kingdom, his glory. Notice in verse 27, he says, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus, out of his love for them, out of his compassion for them, is softening the the blow. He's, He's softening, if you will, the rough edges, the hard edges of what is to come in the future days. And he is softening the reality and understanding of what it is to live the Christian life. The Christian life is not simply one of Jesus has a good plan for your life, as we hear so many people say today come to Jesus, he has a good plan for your life, and that kind of reality. While that is, in an ultimate sense, a truth in the way that being with Jesus is the best thing that could ever be happening in someone's life, and yet. What most mean is that your life will be easier. Life will get simple. Life will be so much better in this temporal world. And yet Jesus is here saying, oh, no, no. The Christian life is a life of suffering. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That doesn't sound like a very good plan. Jesus is a life of the cross, a cross-bearing life. And Jesus in His words is, is somewhat softening, if you will, the sharp edges of that message with the reality of getting a glimpse at His glory. A glimpse of what is to come in the kingdom. And one of the great wonders of being a Christian, particularly as seen in this passage is the reality of the glory that all who know Christ will have when Christ returns at His second coming. The reality of that we will be glorified with Jesus Christ, the glory that is revealed here, gives all of us who are saved brothers and sisters in Christ, just as it did to those on that day who were there with Jesus, it gives us a glimpse at the glory to come. This is a heavenly glimpse that God gives us into what is to come. It reminds us that while our Lord was rejected by men on earth, while Jesus Christ is killed at the hands of wicked men, while He suffered heinously on this earth, one day He will return as He is. He will return as the King of glory. Now last time... We were here together. I said to us that there is a twofold purpose, I believe, that took place in this text or why this text is here. One purpose had to do with Jesus Christ in his humanity, and the other has to do directly with Peter, James, and John, and then indirectly to all of us who believe. We learned last time that just by way of reminder for us, this event was an encouragement to Jesus in His humanity. Why? Because the glory of Christ was revealed. He was there. He's the one who's being revealed in who He really is. Certainly that would have been an encouragement. Secondly, because deliverance To come through him. That's what Moses and Elijah were talking to him about his exodus, his deliverance to come. Not simply for him back to glory, but what he would bring to all who believed upon him. And then, third, because of the coming or the confirming voice of the Father who said, This is my Son, my chosen one. So that glory would once again be Christ's. And it was revealed as He peels back His flesh and the blazing glorious light of His Shekinah shines forth for all to see. And certainly that would have been an encouragement to the humanity of Jesus Christ to continue to work, to go to the cross, to the sufferings that He would bring about in His life and heal others through. And of course, Moses and Elijah being there certainly were there to talk to Jesus about the coming death and ascension. Listen, all of heaven was excited for this day. All of heaven was excited not only for this day where Jesus reveals His glory to these few who would proclaim that to others, but all of heaven was excited because this was the day of deliverance. The day of deliverance was coming and Moses and Elijah are dispatched by God and the glories of heaven to talk with Jesus about the exodus, about the deliverance that he would bring through the cross. The cross to us seems like a dark moment in the history of humanity at some times, and yet it was a glorious day for all in heaven. And all of these, Elijah and Moses, the glorification of himself, the word of the father to jesus christ all of that would have been an encouragement to jesus in his earthly work and i think all of those things would have been an encouragement to those three men who were there peter and john and james why because through them they were to learn the lesson in full color That this one whom they were following, the one to which they had relinquished their life, even though he said he was going to suffer, even though he told them about the rejection to come and the murder that would follow, he would indeed rise again and return in his glorious kingdom. And that would have certainly been an encouragement to them. It was a kingdom in which Moses and Elijah and all others who had gone before would come with Christ. All who die in Christ before his second return, return with Christ to this earth as Christ reigns for a thousand years, as Satan is bound for a thousand years by Christ, as Revelation tells us. So this event, beloved, was meant to remind them. It was meant to remind all of us who believe that though we may be reviled and though we may be persecuted now, though we as Christians may be those who are ridiculed and hated, though because we belong to Christ and because we are enveloped in Christ, there is coming a day when we will be clothed with honor. And we will bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. That day is coming. And we cannot lose sight of that. The epistles clearly tell us to set our mind and our eyes on the things above. And we must have our minds and our eyes set there. This is a glimpse at that time. And isn't it true that we can thank God for a glimpse at that glory? Isn't it true as we sit here this day, as we think about life, as maybe we go through the difficulties of life, some of us more, some of us less, and yet we go through difficulties because life is hard by God's ordaining plan and love and care and mercy for His glory and our good. We can thank God for this glimpse at His glory. Isn't it true because we are often tempted, aren't we? As Christians, we are tempted to give up. We are tempted in our walk of faith to give up because the cross and sufferings that accompany the Christian walk are difficult. They are hard. We are tempted to just say, you know what, I've had enough, I'm giving up. In fact, I was thinking recently of how self centered our world really is. Everyone is out for self. This is the way it is. Everyone is out for self. Everyone does only the things that will bring pleasure to them alone. It doesn't really matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's an individual. It doesn't matter if it's some kind of corporate company that claims to do best for the people that work for it, or it doesn't matter if it's our very government, rarely is anything done because of truth or to benefit others because of some higher relationship with God. Whatever is done in our world is simply to gratify self at the cost of others. I was reminded this week my own reading of Psalm 73. Turn back there for a moment. Psalm 73. It's here the psalmist Asaph is lamenting that very reality in light of the life that he sees around him. He begins... This for us in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Because there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, His people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They have increased in wealth. And Asaph says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Why? Because I've been stricken all day long. Chastened every morning. Asaph says, I look around me at the world around and the wickedness around and how life goes for the world without those who who deny God, for those who, who say God doesn't exist, for those who say they have a relationship with God but, but really don't know Him at all, they live in such a way that mocks God, mocks truth, flaunts wickedness, fulfills every desire of their own foolish heart. It seems as if life just goes on great for them. Life is good for them. I washed my hands in innocence, and yet I've been stricken all day. In other words, I've done what's right. I've followed God. I've lived the life that God has made and trusting in Him. So what happens to me? Why so much trouble for me? Asaph certainly then says, if I had said... I will speak like this. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He says, if I if I go down that foolish road, I, I'm i just betraying the very reality of the faith that I live. And so he says, when I pondered under, to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. So he says, until my perspective was set on the things above, until I till I went before God and saw God for who He is and saw them for who they are and saw myself as the, the vessel of mercy before a holy God, until I came into the sanctuary of God, my mind was going all kinds of places it should not go. It was envious of the wicked. It was wishing for my life, the things of their life, the ease of their life. But when I thought of God and I saw their end, I understood exactly what was happening. Verse 28, he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Don't sometimes we think like Asaph? Sometimes in our Christian life, that's how we get in our hearts. When we look around the world, we see the suffering, we see the difficulty We see the trials of our life. We look around at those who do not know God and it seems like everything's going just fine. It seems like their bank accounts are getting bigger. There's no trouble. Their house isn't falling apart. Difficulty in our life seems to be a challenge and yet in theirs it seems not to be. seems as though there are few standing with the Christian Yet there are many against the Christian. All of these things continue to try us at our very core. And our faith, our faith at times can begin to be shaken. And the transfiguration is one of God's given remedies for our tired faith. Maybe may be difficult now, but there are great and glorious things to come for those who truly know Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming back in His power. He is coming back in great glory, and all of those who are His will come with Him, and we are safe until that day, and we are safe for all eternity in Christ. And so we are encouraged to continue as we look at this passage, despite the suffering, despite the difficulty, despite the cross bearing, because of texts like we read this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, just by way of reminder, says, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We need to hear that. We need to hear that because our faith can grow tired. Peter and James and John needed that kind of encouragement. The idea for them in walking with Jesus Christ, the idea of the kingdom had just been in their minds shattered. Their kingdom wasn't the kingdom that Jesus Christ is promoting. Their king is now going to suffer. Their king is now going to be rejected and murdered. How are they going to continue in this following? How are they going to be encouraged to continue on when Jesus isn't around? And Jesus saying, listen, I know you want the kingdom now. I know you want the kingdom on this earth. I'm going to give you a glimpse of the kingdom to come. I'm going to give you a visual of it, and about eight days later, they get a front front row picture. What an encouragement it would have been for them. A shocking revelation. It ought to be an encouragement for us. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The sufferings of our present day, the way in which the world is, all that God allows for us to endure as bearing the cross for Him, all of that is not worthy to even be compared. Paul says don't even put it on the scales because it matters not. It's not even worthy to be set up against the glory that will be revealed in us in the return of Jesus Christ. We get a glimpse of that right here. There is no comparison between all that we endure now with all that we will gain and have gained in being in Christ. It's like comparing mud to the purest of gold. It doesn't even compare. So Jesus, knowing that we would be discouraged, takes these men and us with them so that they might be encouraged and continue in their faith through what is to come. Now I find it interesting in this very account given to us here. I pointed this out last time, but I find it interesting. Jesus goes in order to pray and these three... Seemingly go in order to take a nap. While he's praying, the appearance of his face became gleaming, became different. His clothes became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were walking with him who appeared in glory, speaking with him. It's Moses and Elijah about his departure. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. The word overcome, by the way, means they were dead, gone, sleeping. I mean, they're in deep REM sleep. They're sleeping. Just like we see in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had no idea what Jesus needs. They had no idea what Jesus is up to. He takes them along out of care for them. While He prays, they sleep. Until... Of course, they are awakened by what is happening. Verse 32 says, but when they were fully awake, that means they were, they were awakened to the point that sleep wasn't even on them anymore. They saw His glory and the two men standing with Him. And as these were leaving Him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not realizing what he's saying. They see Moses and Elijah. I said last time Moses and Elijah didn't wear name tags. You know those little name tags you put on and says hello, my name is. They didn't have that. They just knew. They knew who these men were. They'd never met these men. They heard about these men. They knew what the Old Testament said. Seeing them certainly would have been an encouragement to them. The first was seeing the kingdom come, right? Jesus peeling back His glory and they knew what the Old Testament said about the glory of God. His character is being revealed right before them just like Moses got to see of God. So seeing that firsthand would have been encouragement. They saw what was going to happen before it ever happened. They saw the kingdom before the kingdom was upon us in its fullness, as we will see when Christ returns. That became a continual motivator for them, but also seeing Moses and Elijah. You say, why do you say that? Why do I say that seeing Moses and Elijah would have been an encouragement to them? Because Moses and Elijah represented for the Jew all that they had ever been taught and all that they had ever known in the Jewish religion. Moses represented the law. In fact, the Jews referred to the Old Testament Scriptures as the law of Moses. Moses was the embodiment of the law of God. He was the one that God gave His law to to pass on to the people of God. And Moses was the one who represented that. So they called it the law of Moses. Elijah was the representative of the prophets. And so right here, before Peter, James, and John, you have the prophet, you have the priest, and you have the king. You have all the embodiment of what Christ represents in his fullness right here before them personified Moses the law Elijah the prophet Jesus the king you have prophet Elijah Moses priest king Jesus so all the law and all the prophets are represented with Christ as those giving credence to Christ all of the prophets preached about Christ. All the law spoke and pointed to Christ. And all of this is confirming who Jesus Christ is to these men. <clears throat> all they had learned from the law, all they had heard from the Old Testament prophets pointed to this one whom they were following. And here they are, they're there, they're on the mountain with Jesus in this glorious kind of transcendent form his face has changed, his clothes is gleaming white, and they are speaking with Jesus about His departure. They come, dispatched by God, to speak with Jesus about what is to come. They were excited. Remember the word here in the original language is Exodus means deliverance. They're talking to Jesus about the deliverance that He's going to accomplish in Jerusalem. And I don't, I don't think it's simply speaking of the cross itself, I think it's speaking of not only the cross but also His ascension which would happen from the Mount of Olives sometime after that. <clears throat> So here's Jesus and from within him is the shining out of the essence of the nature of God and its blinding and blazing light and then standing with him are the two greatest men of the Old Testament attesting to the very deity of who Jesus is. Many in Israel would have wondered what happened to Moses after They crossed over the Jordan into the Promised Land. Of course, God buried Moses somewhere on His own so no one could go and find Moses' body. They've wondered what happened to Elijah who just disappeared one day. Elijah walked into heaven. But there was no question how or in their minds of Peter, James, and John. Here they are in the presence of God. They're in the presence of God. They're in the eternal kingdom getting a glimpse of it and in that place for all those years before Jesus Jesus was born, there was Moses and there was an Elijah speaking with Christ in the glories of heaven. They were there before with Christ in the glories of heaven. They've come to speak with Christ about what they were dispatched to talk about. They knew Him personally. They knew clearly the plan of God. and They had been looking forward to this day when Jesus would deliver His people from their sin. This is what they preached. Here are these two great men of the past talking with Jesus about it and looking on in amazed wonder are Peter, James, and John. This would have been frighteningly encouraging to them. It ought to be to us. It ought to be to us. Why? Because the Jesus of the New Testament is the same Jesus of the Old Testament. You say, I don't read Jesus in the Old Testament. You're right, you don't read that name in the Old Testament. You read Yeshua, obviously. That's Joshua, the name, representing a type of Jesus in the sense that he was like that, a deliverer, and yet Jesus of the the New Testament, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Same God. Remember hearing one man say it this way, the giants of redemptive history recognize Jesus as the son of God and they stand with him engulfed in his glory. It's true. Is it any wonder that Peter says to them in verse 33, it's good for us to be here. It's good. We, we, we ought to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He, he's, he's just blurting it out. Luke tells us that Peter said these things as, as they, that is Moses and Elijah, are leaving. They're about to go off the scene here in this glorious event. The scene is almost over. They begin to leave. Exit stage right. And Peter, the spokesman of the men, say to Jesus, Master, Master, that's Peter's term of respect for Jesus. Master. Master. This first comment makes a whole lot of sense. It's good for us to be here. makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, we ought to be here. This is great. I like this. That's what he's saying. I like this. This is what I've been waiting for, Peter's saying. This is what what we've wanted. This is the desire of our heart. When I first started to follow you as the Messiah, this is it. We finally arrived. You notice Peter doesn't have anything on his mind about those down the bottom of the mountain. Not thinking of them at all. Hey, let's just stay here. It's good for us to be here. We don't need, nor do we want to go back to that other life. We don't want that anymore. This is what we've been looking for all along. So Peter says, let us make three tabernacles. Let us make three tents, right? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let us all just kind of permanently camp out. I like it so much, let's make this permanent. Let's just stay. And then Luke makes this interesting comment. I, I love these little comments in the Scriptures. Verse 33, not realizing what he was saying. Peter's so out of his mind, he's so gone with glory, with the reality of what he's seeing, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. I mean, he is out of his mind with verbiage. Peter doesn't even realize what he's saying. He still wants the kingdom to come, but he still doesn't get the plan of God. I mean, it's like Peter back earlier when he says to Jesus, no, no, that's not going to happen to you. When Jesus says, I must go and I must die, Peter's like, no, no, that ain't happening. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're not after God's plan. You're after man's plan. This is like Peter. He's just out of his mind. He's blurting out things. He likes it. This is us. This is us. We don't get the plan of God sometimes. The good days, the mountaintop experiences, we want to stay there. That's where we want to be. God, can't we just have it this way all the time? I mean, this is part of evangelicalism in our day, the nauseating part sometimes, where they want to bring back the golden days. What were the golden days? Golden days. We, we love to have it good and don't want any difficulty. Peter's like, I love it here, man. Let's just stay. This is it. Peter didn't realize this wasn't the beginning of the eternal kingdom. He didn't realize this was the, just the starting point. Other things had to happen. Other things had to go about. Right? God's plan was a fixed plan. I heard one of my mentors say in years past before there will ever be a crown, there has to be a cross. Before there will ever be a crown, there has to be a cross. The true glory for us, beloved, is going to come, but it's going to come in the future. It's going to come in the future. Every mountaintop experience is followed by a valley, valleys are always between the mountains. But this, referring to the transfiguration here, isn't the time because the cross needed to happen. The Son of Man must go. The Son of Man must die just as the prophets told. He must be the suffering servant as Isaiah 53 says. He must be wounded for our transgressions. The judgment of God for us must fall on Him and He must die as the sacrifice for sin. That had to happen. Jesus could not simply just hit His finger with His hammer in the wood shop as He's building some project before in His parents' home and shed a little blood and thereby save people because His blood was shed on the floor of the, of the shop. That doesn't happen. It is the life By reason of the blood which makes atonement. Jesus had to die. There will be no crown for Peter. There will be no crown for James. There will be no crown for John. There will be no crown for any of us who believe without the cross. The cross had to happen. (laughs) So the glimpse of glory that we see here is just a preview of coming attraction a preview to strengthen our faith so that we will always know no matter what happens when we die, when we leave this world. Now remember, he's talking to Peter, James, and John. Peter, for you, when you die crucified upside down, as history tells us, Peter was crucified that way because he didn't want to be like his Lord in his death. He wanted to be, he didn't think he was worthy to be killed like Christ, so he ask them to crucify him upside down. That's at least what historians tell us. Or maybe in the case of James, James, you're going to be martyred by stoning. You're going to be such a good preacher that it's only going to take one message. They're going to haul you out, throw you in a hole, and put rocks on your head. Or in the case of John, you're going to be exiled as an old man to an island because of persecution. They're not going to like what you say. They're going to put you by yourself on an island all by yourself so that by God's design you can write for us what is to come. You have the vision of the revelation and we have all the history to come in the book of Revelation. So as you go through all of that and as the rest of us who are followers of Jesus Christ go through whatever God allows in our lives even though some of us may be martyred for our faith, we will all remember that this is not the end of the story. It's not the end. There is a glorious kingdom beyond this life, and the king in that kingdom is going to come again, and he's going to bring that kingdom to earth, and his glory will fill the earth. It will fill the earth. And he says, not now, Peter. That's not now. Not happening now. While Peter's saying this, verse 35 says, the voice came out of the cloud. While he's saying this, a cloud forms, begins to overshadow them, verse 34, and they're afraid as they enter the cloud. It's a funny way to write it, but as the cloud envelops them. And a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, not only is Christ supreme, He's the glorified one. He is God in the flesh. And seeing that would have encouraged their hearts. But Christ is also sufficient. He's sufficient. Like verse 36 says, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. No one is left with them except Jesus alone. Why? Why? Because Jesus is all they need. They don't need the other guys there hanging around with them. They don't need even the cloud. He's all we need. Glories of heaven are wonderful. Certainly we can talk about heaven and its glories and all that will come and the streets of gold and hanging around with people that we... A part of our family here on this earth as God's family and we love that. And we always ask questions about that and what it's going to be like in heaven and we think about that and ponder about that and all of that's going to be wonderful in the glories of heaven. We look forward to all of that's to come but nothing, nothing is more wonderful about the glories of heaven than Jesus Christ. Nothing. Heaven is heavenly because Jesus Christ is there. So, What is the effect on the disciples that day? What was the effect? The effect, I believe, was encouragement to continue. Encouragement to continue. Raised to believe that the Messiah's destiny was to be a political Messiah. That's how they were raised in the Jewish community. Your Messiah will come and He will deliver you from the oppression that's over you, right? And the Jews today, many are still waiting for that. They're waiting for their Messiah. They want Him to come. Jesus wasn't it in their minds. He wasn't because He didn't remove the oppressors of the day because the kingdom in their mind is an earthly kingdom. Peter, James, and John were taught that. They were taught to think that way. The sight of Jesus being mocked, the sight of Him being insulted and beaten and finally killed... In their heart, in their faith, it's a massive temptation for them to doubt whether He's the real Messiah. So this is a great grace of God. God out of His grace would condescend to them in their lives and give them a glimpse of the glory to come. That would have strengthened their faith. When they saw Jesus Christ hanging on that Roman tree, they heard all of Jerusalem insulting Him, hurling insults at His personhood, they would have remembered His glory. They could remember the voice from heaven that said to them, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. Probably the most important words in this entire text. Listen to Him. I wonder how many right here, right now, are not listening to Him. This is the command of the Scriptures. This is the command of this text from the very mouth of God Himself. This is My Son. He is the Messiah, the Chosen One. You listen to Him. How many aren't listening? We hear the words. We hear the words of this text. We hear what God says, but there's no effect. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Why? Jesus said it. He's the way, the truth, the life. Can't get to the Father any other way. There's no other way to glory. No other way to be in the glories of Jesus Christ or God himself than through Jesus Christ. You may be here today and you're saying, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but... no other way. So even though mankind killed Christ as an imposter and as a blasphemer, the disciples held fast in faith. During the days when He was in the ground, their faith stood strong. They still believed. Certainly they were frightened. Certainly they were cowering. Certainly they were wondering. Yet they believed. And when, through the power of the resurrection, by God's desire, Jesus conquers death, they rejoiced with the anchor of their faith, holding strongly to this very moment. So it wasn't just words for them. Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to him. Beloved, it's the same for us. Our faith can remain strong for all the same reasons. There is a kingdom coming. Don't let your faith be overwhelmingly weary. We serve a living and glorified Lord. He is living. He is glorified to the fullest sense today, so fix your eyes on Him. Why? Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. And it was joy that was on his heart. It was joy that was on his mind that was before him as he endured the cross, Hebrews says, as he despised the shame. And on that resurrection day, the ascension day, the day of his final exodus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews says, consider him. Keep your eyes on Him. Look to Him. Consider Him who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Why? Why are we exhorted to do that? For one simple reason. So that you may not grow weary or lose heart. So that your faith is strengthened. Why were they told this? So that their faith would be strengthened. God says, this is my Son Listen to him. And when it was over, they're there just with Jesus. The last thing on their minds is the word of God. You could be resting assured that when Jesus opened his mouth the next time, their ears perked up. We got to listen to him. Let's pray together, Father. There's nothing more for us here than to listen to Jesus. We have no hope outside of the cross. We have no hope of being in your glory without being enveloped in the glory of Jesus Christ. Without that, your word tells us that your wrath remains on us. There are those here I know who have rejected you They've heard the message before. They have rejected You. And There are those here today, some in families who have been going to this church for a long time, some who are new here, who reject You right now. They hear the truth with their ears and their heart is dead to You. We pray, Lord, we plead with You behalf of your mercy and grace and the glory that is known only to you that you by your power would quicken them to life that they would stop rejecting and listen to Christ for in you is life and you give life because upon you your just wrath was outpoured so that through your Son that life would be given to those who believe. So we pray and plead with you on behalf of them here that they would see their sin turn from it embrace Jesus Christ by faith and we can rejoice knowing that it wasn't them at all it was all you to the praise of the glory of your grace. We long for the glory to come in Christ, that we might one day be with you in the eternal kingdom. For now, we just rejoice in you, keeping our eyes fixed on you, so that whatever you allow, we will not grow weary and lose heart. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.